Good evening. G20 protests in Venice. Biden talks competition and antitrust. James Henry digs deep into the subject while we hear about the latest from Haiti. And here in New York, is there an opportunity for a stock transfer tax? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, July 11th, 2021. At least 16 people were killed and 57 wounded in fighting between Afghan army and the Taliban in Kandahar yesterday. The head of a regional hospital in the city said there are different people among the killed, both civilians and militants, adding that among the 57 injured, there are at least 12 women and children and that casualties may rise. Afghan officials say they repelled an attack by the Taliban on the city on Friday. Fighting has intensified across Afghanistan, with the Taliban taking over large parts of the country as the withdrawal of U.S. troops nears its completion. And across the world, Italian police officers clash with demonstrators during a protest against the G20 economy and finance ministers and central bank governors meeting in Venice yesterday. Over a thousand environmental and social justice activists calling themselves We Are the Tide joined the demonstration. Demonstrators could be seen carrying large barriers as police officers in riot gear charged against them. Firebombs and flares were also hurled at police officers. The finance ministers approved a tax reform for multinationals aiming to, to stop the use of tax havens and a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15 percent, requiring tech giants like Amazon and Facebook to pay taxes in countries where their goods are services are sold. The tax proposal has been opposed by small low-tax havens like Ireland and Hungary, while Republicans in the United States have bristled that the tax rate was punitive towards U.S. corporations. On Friday, President Joe Biden signed a new executive order aimed at cracking down on anti-competitive practices by big tech and other sectors of the U.S. economy. He said capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. My executive order includes 72 specific actions. I expect the federal agencies, and they know this, <laughs> to help restore competition so that we have lower prices, higher wages, more money, more options, and more convenience for the American people. All told, between rising prices and lowering wages, lack of competition costs the median American household $5,000 a year. Look, I'm a proud capitalist. I spent most of my career representing the corporate state of Delaware. I know America can't succeed unless American business succeeds. But let me be very clear. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. Without healthy competition, big players can change and charge whatever they want and treat you however they want. And for too many Americans, that means accepting a bad deal for things that can't go. You can't go without President Biden. Biden's order includes 72 actions and recommendations that involve more than a dozen federal agencies. His purpose, according to the White House, is to reshape the thinking around corporate consolidation and antitrust laws. Attorney Jim, James Henry is a fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He specializes in antitrust law and corporate tax dodges. He says while Biden might mean well, the G20 action on taxes is too little 
too late. The antitrust effort by Biden is a good thing. And I'm an old antitrust lawyer. I think this could make a lot of difference. Antitrust has been basically shunted to the sidelines in the last 25 years. And we could really use a healthy dose of tougher legislation as well as enforcement. It's not clear that uh, Biden's executive orders are really going to make a whole lot of difference. So we really need some breakups of the some of the monopolies in play. But some of these same monopolies are also the target of the G20 tax action. This is a little bit like being invited to dinner and being served pictures of food. Biden and Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen talked a lot about establishing global minimum tax of 15%. Originally, they were going to have 21% tax, somewhere like $2 trillion of multinational profits from companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple that are shifted to low tax jurisdictions around the planet and have been avoiding all kinds of taxation. But this measure is just kind of a drop in the bucket. Originally, it was going to raise more than $500 billion over 10 years. I think the final format, they'll be lucky to raise 200 to 300 billion over a decade. And most of um, that money is going to end up going to the richest countries on the planet. Developing countries like South Africa and India and Argentina are really kind of left out of this deal. And that reflects the fact that over time, the UN has gotten out of the business of making rules for international taxation of big companies and has allowed the OECD, which is an organization of 36 rich countries, to take charge. I'm pretty disappointed in what the OECD has actually come up with as it rolls out over the next six months. I'm sure Biden is going to talk it up, but I really think it's kind of much to do about nothing from the standpoint. And that's reflected in the fact that in the last month, the stock prices of all these big dominant digital companies like Amazon and Facebook and Apple have soared. Amazon's up 13%. Apple's up 14%. This is just the last month. Facebook's up six. Google's up four. So it's hard to account for that. If they were really serious about increasing taxes on these big multinational monopolies, they would not see these tax rises. In the U.S., you have the Wall Street Journal and other people saying that this is an assault on U.S. corporations, that U.S. corporations are being treated unequally compared to foreign corporations. The U.S. corporations have nothing to complain about. We've seen sharp reductions in the rate of... This is uh, a step back toward where we were, but it's nothing like the uh, tax rates that we saw in the 1980s before the Reagan administration started hacking them, let alone the the 60 to 80 percent taxes on large corporations that prevailed under that good old socialist Dwight Eisenhower. Those of us who have been active in fighting for tax justice over the last decade have our work cut out for us to roll this back. And I think one of the struggles is going to be to get the United Nations to take on more of an aggressive role in international tax justice, because it's clear that the OECD coalition isn't really up to the job. And that is James Henry. He's a fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He specializes in antitrust law and corporate tax dodges. And back in the United States, authorities searching for victims of a deadly collapse in Florida said today they hope to conclude their painstaking work in the coming weeks as Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava announced the new death toll. We have now recovered over 14 million pounds of concrete and debris. And through our search and recovery, we have recovered additional victims since our last briefing. And the number of confirmed deaths is now 90. 
71 victims have been identified and their next of kin notified. And our hearts and minds are always with those we've lost and with the families who are grieving and those that are still waiting. The uh, search and rescue teams are out there in, in numbers uh, greater than I've seen all along. And crews continue to search the remaining pile of rubble, peeling layer after layer of debris in search of bodies. Surfside Mayor Charles Burkett. The uh, search and rescue teams are out there in, in numbers uh, greater than I've seen all along. There continues to be heavy machinery undertaking very delicate scratching of the surfaces with our teams nearby. So they're utilizing every tool they have. The work is still so delicate that we've even found unbroken wine bottles in the rubble and recovered them. We're also finding uh, personal possessions as small as rings, which are also being returned to the site uh, storage area, categorized, photographed, and uh, saved for the families. And that was Charles Burkett. He's the mayor of Surfside, where the building collapsed occurred. Last night, members of the community walked along Collins Avenue, the city's main thoroughfare, to celebrate the crews that have come from across the country and as far away as Israel and Mexico to help in the rescue and now recovery effort. The Miami-Dade Police Department said three young children were among those recently identified. And in the Caribbean, not too far, Haiti's interim government has asked the United States and United Nations to deploy troops to protect key infrastructure as it tries to stabilize the country and prepare for elections in the aftermath of President Jovenel Moise, Moise's assassination. The request for U.S. troops recalled the tumult following Haiti's last presidential assassination in 1915. It led to decades of occupation spearheaded by U.S. Marines. Officials say the local police force is weak and lacks resources. But senior Biden administration officials said the U.S. has no plans to provide military assistance at this time as this country pulls its remaining troops from its 20-year war in Afghanistan. Instead, the Biden administration will send senior FBI and Department of Homeland Security officials support a prince to assess the situation. Meanwhile, the Colombian Defense Ministry identified 13 suspects as former members of the South American nation's military. Two were killed hours after the assassination, and the other 11 are in custody. The Colombian military receives tremendous support and training from the United States, and its former soldiers have been implicated as mercenaries in the past. In an interview on Colombian radio, a woman who said she was married to one of the suspects claimed she was paid, he was paid $2,500 to go to Haiti and arrest Moises. Two Americans arrested in connection with the assassination claimed they were not in the room when he was killed and that they had worked only as translators for the hit squad. Moise was shot dead in his private residence on the outskirts of the capital around 1 a.m. on Wednesday his body riddled with bullets. In Miami's little Haiti, where many of the one million Haitian immigrants and refugees live in the United States, the events in their home country were unexpected. Haiti is what we call our bloodline, and it's our true identity, it's our tradition. So when you see the country going to, to these types of turmoil, it hurts. You know, you're talking about an election that was done the proper way. He was elected democratically. You know, he's not a dictator. The gap and the opportunity, nah, you can't compare that to other countries that have their security as a priority. And it should not have happened, period. 
and that was a commentary from a Haitian American in Little Haiti in Miami. But despite support in some quarters for U.S. military intervention in Haiti, Haiti specialist Brian Concanon says much of Haitian civil society has concluded that Moise's presidency was not legitimate. The gangs are a little bit of a complicated situation. There is, as in almost any place where you have a lack of government services and a government presence, armed groups can take out the space that's left by the government. And in Haiti, gangs can go kind of across a political spec or across a spectrum of activities, especially following the coup d'etat in 2004. There were a lot of gangs that were set up almost purely for self-defense as a way of neighborhoods defending themselves against other gangs and against the dictatorship. The other end of the spectrum, you have gangs that are only purposes is common crime. A lot of the gangs are somewhere in the middle where they provide some protection and other services to people in the community, but they are also involved in common crime. And, you know, it's not unlike kind of a mafia setup and other organized crime in the United States where criminal organizations are able to entrench themselves in areas where there aren't enough government services. A guy named Jimmy Cherizier played a positive role. It's unquestionably true. He's done some positive things and many people, especially in his neighborhood, do look up to him as a positive force. From the information I've seen on balance, I think that Cherizier is more problematic than he is helpful in the sense that his gangs have unleashed a reign of terror on other neighborhoods. What happens next? A lot depends on what the United States allows to happen. The Constitution gives a roadmap for how to get out of this, but those roads were all blocked by Moise. What you're supposed to have is a joint session of parliament that convokes within 60 days to elect a new president. There is no parliament, so they can't do it. And in the meantime, the prime minister is supposed to run things, which appears to be what's happening. The problem is the prime minister is not official. He's interim. He was never ratified by parliament. What I'm hearing from my Haitian collaborators is that they want some kind of a transitional, negotiated, broad-based structure that can help move Haiti forward and lead towards fair elections. There are fears that the United States is going to pick its candidate and force that candidate into a position of leadership. Like people seem to want the U.S. to come in and help. And there's lots of people who are calling for U.S. military intervention right now. That's a pretty small minority opinion. Um, Haitians accept that there will be some kind of U.S. involvement just in the way that gravity is operating on me right now. They don't see any way that that's not going to happen. And Haitians were very hopeful when President Biden came into office. In general, they feel that their hopes have been betrayed. That was Haiti specialist Brian Concanon. The two Haitian Americans arrested say they're from Florida. According to a judge in Haiti, it was one of the Americans who had yelled that the assailants were agents of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency over a loudspeaker at the start of the assault. The DEA has denied any involvement in the assassination. And in Charlottesville, Virginia, cheers erupted yesterday as a Confederate statue that towered for nearly a century over downtown Charlottesville was carted away by truck from the Virginia city where it had become a flashpoint for racist protests and deadly violence. Zayanna Bryant, who petitioned for the removal of the statue, and former city council member Kristen Zakos said the removal of the monument was about time. People out there, I hope that this empowers you to speak up on the issues that matter and to take charge in your own cities and communities. No platform for white supremacy, no platform for racism, and no platform for hate. We're finally ready to, to be a community that doesn't 
telegraph through our public art that we are pretty fine with white supremacy. And that was uh, in 2017, fascists and white supremacists marched through the town with tiki torches, chanting things like Jews will not replace us and other fascist and neo-Nazi slogans. The next day, a member of the group, of the fascist group, drove his vehicle into a crowd of anti-fascist protesters, murdering Heather Heyer, a young woman who was among the groups of people protesting the fascists. Meanwhile, in Washington, a new House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol is expected to hold its first public hearing this month. Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi is chair of the select committee. He said in assessment by FBI Director Christopher Wray that racially motivated violent extremism is the strongest motivation for him to participate, was the strongest motivation for him to participate in the hearing. When I heard the FBI director tell me the radical right wing element in this country greatly exceeded any other threat, that coupled with what happened on January 6th tell me that the significance of this committee's work is as important as it can ever get. And Thompson said the hearings will kick off with police officers who responded to the attack and custodial staff who cleaned up afterward. The House Select Committee on January 6th will be looking for its first committee hearing to interview rank-and-file members uh, of the Capitol Police as well as employees of the custodial and other support staff who happen to be in the Capitol on January 6th. To our knowledge, those individuals have not been afforded an opportunity to tell their side of the story. So if our investigation leads us to members of Congress, our charge requires us to look at all the facts and circumstances around January 6th. I don't think anyone is off limits if the facts lead us in that direction. Thompson said that whether the panel will call Trump to testify uh, hasn't said whether the panel will call President Trump, former President Trump, to testify. But he said, as he just said, we heard him say, I don't think anyone is off limits. And he continued that if any witnesses resist, he reiterated that he is willing to use the panel's subpoena authority to the fullest extent of the law. With less than a month to go before many schools begin reopening for the fall, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Friday released new guidelines for preventing COVID-19 transmission in schools. The agency stressed that schools should fully reopen even if they were not able to put in effect all those measures. Erin Sauber-Schatz is with the CDC. So anyone who's fully vaccinated, um, they can... They don't need to mask indoors. They don't need to physical distance. However, it, it can be difficult for a school to either um, document the vaccination status of their students, uh, teachers and staff. And so in that situation, they might decide to do universal policies. So it, it will really be up to the schools and the districts and the states to determine if they're able to put different rules in place in the classroom for those who are fully vaccinated compared to those who are not yet vaccinated. We also recognize that distancing in the classroom is, is a challenge in some places. And so our updated guidance, even though we're recommending at least three feet of physical distancing for COVID-19 prevention, 
if a, if a school or classroom is not able to maintain at least three feet distancing, that should not keep any kids out of the classroom. So our recommendation is if you're going to remove any prevention strategies, do them one at a time and monitor to make sure that you're not having in, any increase in Erin Sauber-Schatz is with the CDC. Protesters took the fight. uh, Let's come back to New York City. Protesters took the fight over New York City's housing crisis to Mayor Bill de Blasio's door uh, last night, demanding he reverse his decision to evict a group of homeless men from an Upper West Side hotel. De Blasio announced last week his plan to move the residents of the Lucerne Hotel to the Harmonia Hotel in response to a well-funded campaign by a group of Upper West Siders who were opposed to the homeless people in their neighborhood. There's only a minority of people who live in that neighborhood. Those Upper West Side residents complained after four hotels in the area were converted into homeless shelters during the pandemic to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in more crowded congregate settings. The group hired attorney Randy Mastro, former deputy mayor Rudy Giuliani, who threatened to sue the city. And in more New York City political news, Eric Adams and Alvin Bragg, the respective presumptive next mayor and Manhattan DA, join Reverend Al Sharpton at the National Action Network to address what their leadership means moving forward. And so don't allow yourselves to get confused. You may look at our new district attorney and his concepts of how he wants to use that office to deal with public safety, to deal with crime. It's no different than mine. He may take one street, I may take another, but the destiny is the same. It's the same. Alvin Bragg is going to redefine a prosecutor's office and how we are going to ensure that we don't criminalize young people every day in this city. We've been given the most profound obligation. The state has the power to take away someone's liberty. We are going to use that power judiciously and wisely. We are going to use that for fairness and for safety. We're going to address our racial disparities. We're going to have one system of justice for all, and we are going to address these guns on our streets. Bragg will also handle the prosecution of the Trump organization begun under his predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr. But James Henry says there is a way for New Yorkers to get out of their problems besides more law enforcement. He says... The way to provide jobs and to help people impact by COVID can be found on Wall Street with a stock transfer tax. Eric has an opportunity here to basically sign on to an idea that really makes sense from the standpoint of New York City in particular and also uh, New York State. We already have a stock transfer tax in place in New York. I've had it in place since 1905, since 1982. It's been rebated to Wall Street, and it's cost New York State about $350 billion in tax revenues. We could sorely need the 15 to $20 billion that uh, the stock transfer tax would raise. And we're talking about a 0.1% sales tax on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange transactions on investors. It's something that investors wouldn't even miss, $8.80 per average transaction of $8,800 on the NASDAQ last year. So, yes, it makes sense. And I think Eric Adams is going to realize that the Biden administration is not going to be coming through with the kind of revenues that they were expecting because their tax plans in Washington, as this uh, OECD bill reflected, are kind of stuck. 
They just don't have support in the Senate to get them through. So originally he was talking about something like $3.6 trillion of increased tax revenue over 10 years. Now he's hacked that back to $2 trillion, and there's still some doubts about whether he can get all that passed. New York City is going to need the revenue. And they ought to be looking to the, uh, to the stock transfer tax as one way to really generate the revenue that New York City needs to invest. Andrew Yang told me they'll run to Florida. No, that's ridiculous. Every time we've mentioned the stock transfer tax for the last hundred years, Wall Street makes that same noise. It never has. It never will. There's just too many reasons to be in New York City. And a 0.1% sales tax is not a reason for leaving. It would cost trillions to relocate. If they had spent the energy that they spent on the corporate tax reform on just getting the top exchanges in the world to adopt a 0.1% stock transfer tax, we could have easily raised not $275 billion over 10 years, but more than uh, $200 billion a year that could be shared with developing countries. James Henry is a fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He specializes in antitrust law and corporate tax dodges. And finally, the bones of one of America's worst air disasters are finally being laid to rest. But there will be no special grave or burial ceremony for the battered, twisted and fire scarred chunk of fuselage from TWA Flight 800, which exploded minutes after takeoff 25 years ago this month over the Atlantic Ocean, killing all 230 passengers and crew members who were bound for Paris and then Rome. A 93 foot long, two story white, silver and red aluminum and steel section of the doomed Boeing 747 jetliner is about to be chopped and melted into scrapped, or as the National Transportation Safety Board officially calls the process certified destruction. The destruction comes as lingering questions about the disaster witnessed by many in the skies over Long Island, some of who said they saw a missile strike the aircraft. The enormity of the accident, the number of individuals that were involved in helping us do what we did here, uh, but also remind you, I think, what we're doing and who we're doing it for. You know, we're certainly doing it for the families that were affected here. When we brought this here in 2003, prior to that, there was a conversation with the family group, and they were very clear that they would support it for training purposes, but did not want it to become something of a museum piece or where people just sort of casually walked by and looked at it. We never have found evidence, and this is corroborated by the FBI, we have never found evidence of anything that shows evidence of a higher energy, a higher order explosion you would get from a bomb or a missile nor did we see any indications on the structure of pre-existing damage, which we would call uh, fatigue or corrosion. We'll keep looking for it, but we're also looking more strongly at the possibility of a center wing tank explosion simply from the explosive nature of the vapors in the center wing tank. All we needed at that point, in a way, was a spark. And I was on the air live at WBAI hosting my nighttime show, Let Them Talk, the evening of the disaster, and I fielded many calls that night from witnesses. Within moments of the explosion, eyewitnesses who called in my radio show that night. It made me very interested in the case and surprised when the uh, alternative explanation of a center wing fuel tank explosion was then presented as the cause. And that's some of the news for Sunday, July 11th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.